Welcome to the Digi Day podcast. I'm Lara O'Reilly, Digi Day's senior correspondent in London. I'm filling in for your regular host, Brian Morrissey, throughout the month of August. Um, today, I'm delighted to welcome Chris Best to the show. Chris is the CEO of Substack. You'll obviously know it. It's the newsletter platform that's helping provide the infrastructure for a brand new class of media entrepreneurs, and some of which are actually making more money now from their individual newsletters than they were from their prestigious salaried jobs. So Chris, glad to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. And um, where are you joining us from? San Francisco. Fantastic. Okay, so Chris, um, before you joined Substack, I just wanted to go back a little bit. You're a software engineer and programmer by trade, is that right? Yeah. And so prior to Substack, you were one of the co-founders of Kick, which is the uh, the messaging app that was particularly popular amongst teens, but shut down last year. Um, which was also after you'd left too. Um, so how did Kick come about? How did Kick come about? Well, I met uh, Ted in when we were in third year university, um, and this was kind of fairly early on in the smartphone era, I guess. Uh, we were in Waterloo, Ontario, which is the home of RIM, who made the BlackBerry, that old you know that old phone that had the keyboard next to it. And there was sort of a, a time back then when it was early days for the smartphone. Um, and the people that had Blackberries were kind of like Wall Street traders and interns from the University of Waterloo that worked at Blackberry. And so we sort of had this early idea that, okay, the smartphone is going to take over the world, um, which is something that was it seems really obvious in retrospect. But at the time, I think people maybe didn't fully believe or didn't fully understand. And we started just working on, we actually started making a music player for the BlackBerry and went through a bunch of iterations and it morphed and morphed. And we ended up coming to messaging because it felt like messaging was kind of the core, most important application of this magical new computer that fits in your pocket, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Kick was around for around kind of 10 years and it wasn't, I guess, without its controversies, shall we say. So what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned in, in building that business? I mean, there was a lot of just mechanics of building a company. And I, I sometimes joke that doing it a second time uh, is a chance to make all new mistakes, <laughs> which I try to do. I think one thing that really stuck with me is when you have a, a system that people are using to communicate, the rules of how the system work and the interactions, that just the, the way that you present interactions to people can have a massive effect on the emergent behavior in that system, like the, the, the outcomes, the kinds of the feel of a place is massively, can be massively shaped by the rules of the game that you set up uh, in the system. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and obviously you were dealing with kind of user content as well, which, which comes with its own challenges. Sure. <laughs> Let's move on. So why Substack? So 2017, um, is when you kind of officially founded the company. What was the genesis of the idea? Did it kind of start as a bit of a, a side hustle while you were still CTO at Kick? No, I'd actually, I'd, I'd left Kick under, you know, we, circumstances that I that seemed like the right time. We sort of had bought a company uh, and there was somebody that was perfect to replace me. So I was like, great, you're me, goodbye. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to have to give. Um, so I was taking, I planned to take a year off and sort of do all the things that you, don't always get to do when you're uh, running a fast-growing company, like spend time with friends and family and read books and all these things. And one of the things that I've always sort of had the ambition to do was try to write. 
because um, I've always been an avid reader. I'm a, I'm a huge believer that what you read matters, shapes you know how you think and who you are. And so great writing is very valuable and, and sort of high leverage thing. So I was like, I, I would like to write. I'd like to try and uh, write sort of an essay or a blog post or something. And this mm-hmm. is going to be one of my little projects that I, that I do. And I started writing something sort of complaining about the state of the media ecosystem. Um, basically, the, the, the theory being that, hey, you know, the internet came along and revolutionized distribution for, for written content. Um, you know, you can publish something globally and instantly and free, and it's this magical utopian technology. But at the same time, it came and smashed all of the existing business models. Um, and I was writing an essay basically complaining about this. I sent it to my friend Hamish, who's a writer. We sort of got into it. Uh, he, you know, he said, it's easy to complain about this stuff. If you're, you know, what would you do about it? <laughs> how would you, how, would, how could this even work differently? And it uh, sort of turned into the company. So I, I sometimes say that I'm still just procrastinating from finishing that one essay. And there are, there's, there's three co-founders, right? So, so Hamish, as you just mentioned, is the, yeah. the writer. Um, I guess you're the engineer and you have another co-founder too. Ah, so this is the trick. Jiraj, who's our other co-founder, is the engineer. He's a million uh, okay. times better engineer than I could ever hope to be. And so it makes it easier for me to do the CEO-y things this time around. I see. Okay, so talk me through that first year then, the three of you. What, what was it like getting the business off the ground? I, I'm right in thinking you started out with kind of one writer who wrote about China initially. Yeah, his name is uh, Bill Bishop. He <laughs> writes Cynicism at Cynicism.com. Um, and he had been writing this newsletter uh, about China that was read by kind of this global business and government and everybody that needs to know what's going on in China. Um, you know, our, our, our early idea was, hey, what if we could just make a, you know, make a tool that makes it really easy for a writer to go independent, publish a newsletter, publish to the web, make money from subscriptions, sort of put all that together. And we figured maybe there's some people out there who would who would want something like that. And we talked to Bill and he was basically already planning to do something like this, but he couldn't like, hadn't gotten around to sort of like getting the tech together to do it. So he was the perfect first customer. Um, and we worked, we built the original version of Substack basically for him. Um, and he launched uh, October, 2017. And then, so you raised your first seed round in 2018, is that right? Yeah, so we went through uh, Y Combinator, which is an accelerator here uh, in the Bay Area, and we raised a seed round after that. Um, what was your kind of pitch to investors at, at this point? What was the the long term vision? Because obviously, you know, already there were tons of newsletter services out there. You know, Review and Mailchimp and Tiny Letter, or, or something that your employer used, or whatever. So, why Substack, and, and what did they see in its long long term potential? It's sort of weird to say this, but Substack is only tangentially a newsletter service. Um, The real core of what Substack is, is a platform that lets a writer go independent and own their own space, own their own mailing list and audience, um, write what they think is important, connect directly with the, their, their readership, both in the sense that they can reach out to them and publish stuff directly to the people that have opted in, and in the sense that their readership can pay them directly, that people subscribe directly to an individual writer on Substack. And the reason that newsletters come into it is just that email is a very powerful part of that, uh, of that 
the, the tool set you need to build one of one of those things. And so the pitch to investors was never like, hey, we're another newsletter service that's kind of like, you know, tiny letter or MailChimp, but different. The pitch to investors was, hey, this is a new business model for written culture. Because the world has changed in the ways that it has, there's this giant sort of hole in the universe where writers could be striking on their own, writing the stuff they think is important and asking people to pay for it. And that thing will actually work and be a, be a massive, be a massive thing because it's a better model for, for a whole host of things. Um, that was the pitch. And at the time it was, people were a little bit skeptical. It's like, will people really, you know, <laughs> will people really pay for a, a writing on the internet? That seems crazy. Um, but so far it turns out that they, they, they do, they do. I guess because at the time, I mean, VCs love writing and love blogging, right? But there's, I guess at the time, there were only a few that were starting to charge. I'm thinking like Ben Thompson and, I mean, he's not VC, sorry, but a, a few in the in the kind of tech space, I mean, that were started to do their own thing and charge. It was a very nascent idea, even, just to strike out on your own individually. Yeah, Ben Thompson is certainly a pioneer of the model, and he's someone that every every investor is aware of, which is yeah. a, a nice a nice feature. Okay, so let's fast forward to now then. Can we run through some of the, the numbers? So so how many people work at Substack full-time? Uh, there are 13. And how many users overall? How many readers roughly do you have on the platform? It's, it's millions of readers and hundreds of thousands of paying subscribers is the order of magnitude. Okay. And then just can we talk through the, the last year as well? I'm, I'm imagining you've seen a huge uptick since the coronavirus crisis hit and sadly you know the the media layoffs beginning to sweep but i guess also um you know people just navigating a new uh, maybe more um reliable way of way of doing business i mean how, how have you been kind of navigating the, the 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 changes of the past few months yeah we've certainly seen a, a boost um and so we've been to be honest we've been kind of just running to keep up uh keep up with the the growth on the platform. Mm. Um, I think the the things you said, you know, the media layoffs. Unfortunately, um, people. You sort of hinted at it, but this idea that people are hungry for sources of information that they can trust, um, that they can rely on, and they feel like have their best interests at heart in some important way. Mm. Uh, I think contributes a lot, and also people are just looking for you know looking for stuff to do and stuff to read and stuff to be connected to the outside world while they're stuck at home. And the so the business model, broadly speaking, is you take a kind of a, a ten percent cut of any paid for subscription. So that's right. With that in mind, I mean, what kind of a percentage of Substack newsletters actually charge their subscribers? Is it is it a majority, a minority? Um, it's definitely a minority in the way that we sort of look at it, because publishing is free. So you can come on Substack yeah. and you can publish for to as many people as you want, totally free. We don't charge you anything. It's actually fairly cheap. Um, this is one of the reasons that lots of people started using Substack is because other email providers, their business model is to like charge you to reach people because you're usually selling something. And we were sort of like, hey, you're putting all this work into making this great editorial thing that people like. You shouldn't pay for that privilege. If anything, you should get paid for it, but at least it should be free. So the you know, large majority of people writing on Substack don't charge yet. Mm. And I think the yet is part of the, the key <laughs> how that strategy works for us is if you want to come and use Substack to build a, a 
loyal audience of people that love your work and think it's important and want to want to continue. It's great. We, we're so happy to have you. We're so happy to support that anyway. But also, you are our target customer for who is going to choose to turn on subscriptions at some point. Um, we think a lot about aligning incentives. You know, we want the writer's incentives to be aligned with the reader. We want you know, them to be able to trust all that stuff. We also want our incentives to be aligned with everybody's. So that's why we say, you know, it's free to publish. Uh, and we just take, we don't make any money until you make money. Basically, we take a cut of subscriptions. So the more that we can help you succeed, the more money we make. And that way, everybody's kind of in the same boat. And are you seeing... Um so as you say, you know, you're a new platform anyway, um, but are you seeing that kind of percentage of those that charge versus those that don't? Is that is that becoming bigger over time um, or is it broadly speaking kind of saying staying the same as your you know total audience grows? I think it's broadly staying the same. I mean, the way to think of it is kind of a, a life cycle or a funnel, right? Some people start. We've had a, a number of people do this, right? Some people are sort of like, it's really easy to start. So I'll just I'll just make a little, you know, I'll make a little newsletter. I'm starting a little blog. I'm going to start doing that. It's fun. And then, you know, I get a couple people to sign up and then it's kind of like, it's nice writing something for a couple people and I keep at it. And then my list grows and it becomes something that I get more and more invested in as people find more value in it. And then one day I've sort of got thousands of people reading this thing and telling me that it's important. And it suddenly makes a lot of sense that maybe I should charge for this. Maybe this should be a side hustle or maybe this should even be my job if it's, if it's something that's, really going well. And there are lots of people who do that, who at the start never came to Substack thinking, I'm going to start charging right away, or maybe mm. even I'm going to start charging ever. Do you have examples of those? Are they the kind of more perhaps, you know, whimsical ones or, I mean, again, there's, there's, there's great value in that, but you know, you know what I mean? Like they're more kind of entertainment ones or the more just, um, you know, flow of consciousness newsletters that I've seen on there. Um, there's lots of good ones. I mean, there's the one that I'm looking at that's in our, you know, on our top paid publication list right now is Letters from an American by Heather Cox Richardson. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure I have the story right that she was not intending to come and, and charge. I think she was writing a series of posts on Facebook that got really popular and decided to sort of make a newsletter so that people could subscribe directly um, and is now uh, extremely successful. I'm trying to think who else sort of fits in that in that category, um, but there's been there's there's a there's a number of people that are I mean I'm just sort of scrolling through our top publications and there's a number of people who started out um, essentially from from scratch. Yeah, yeah, certainly. That's not all just a kind of a side hustle from a main media gig or a um, or a replacement from a, for a media gig either. I, I guess. Um, are, are there any kind of sweet spots you've noticed in pricing? Your I think. Am I right in thinking the, the minimum that you have to charge is, is $5 a month if you're going to charge anything at all? Um, are you seeing any interesting trends there? Does it change depending on which kind of subsector you're writing about or writing for even? Yeah, we set that minimum just because when we started, we found a lot of writers, their instinct was to charge far too little. Huh. Um, a lot of people would say, oh, maybe I'll charge 50 cents a month. And, you know, not only does that not work with, transaction fees, but it, you know, it's just too little people, you undervalue yourself. And so we kind of, I think of it as giving people an excuse to charge at least $5 a month that they're going <laughs> to, going to charge it all. We kind of tell people, look, if you're making something for a general, a general audience, that's just reading it for fun, somewhere between five and 10 bucks a month is usually pretty good. If you're 
making something that people, you know, are going to read because it helps them professionally and potentially they're going to be able to treat it as a business expense. You can, you can charge a lot more. Something that we started doing is we, we've started offering a, a founding tier. So if you'd like to, as a writer, you can offer sort of like a, a special high-end subscription um, that costs, you know, some suggested amount, let's say four times as much as the, the normal yearly price for people that just really want to really want to see this thing exist. And we're seeing a lot of uptake on that, actually, which tells me that there's a lot of interest out there for people to sort of to fund this stuff. Interesting. And do you find, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the range of stuff on there, um, I mean, it's, you know, you've, you've opened this up to the entire world. So clearly there's, there's a huge range of content, but do you find that the best Substack newsletters have something in particular in common? Yeah, I think the best Substack newsletters have a point of view or a voice or some sort of, there's a there there. There's some mm. particular sense of there's a person behind this or there's a, an ethos behind this that I can get to know over time and that I can trust and that I find sort of valuable. Because you're really, you're just deciding to subscribe to a, to a publication, to, a, to a, a writer in many cases. Not, you're not just trying to subscribe like because, you know, to get one post or to get one piece of writing. And then it, I guess Substack started, as, as we said, you know, at the beginning it started with, with one writer, but we're now seeing, um, you know, entire brands launch on their kind of bundles. Do you think that's, that's kind of the direction in which Substack's going? Uh, not, I mean, not one replacing the other, but just this becoming more of a, um, a, a framework for other media brands, not just the individual publications. I certainly think it's very powerful and it's something that people want. Uh, we, you know, we've been building features out for that because uh, we've had sort of overwhelming demand from writers saying they want to do this. And the, the, the place where it really clicked for me was when I made the analogy to sort of starting a company. Um, you know, when you go to start a company, it's, it's just a kind of a wild thing to do. And it helps to have co-founders. It helps to have co-conspirators in a way to kind of like make this thing go with you. It adds this sort of air of excitement and, and you can egg each other on. And I think letting people do that is a, is a powerful thing. Definitely. And do, do you foresee introducing kind of more revenue lines as, um, as time goes on? I know before you said there'll definitely be no advertising, but, um, you know, revenue diversification is, um, is important for every media company at the moment. So, uh, where do you see, um, Substack heading in, in those directions and branching out beyond just the, uh, the take of subscriptions. I, I'm not sure I do see that. I think that we are, we are focused on letting the audience directly fund the work. Um, subscriptions happen to be a, a, a very powerful way to do that. And I think there might be other sort of, you know, other ways to pay for things that, that we might experiment with. But we actually don't think that diversifying into advertising, let's say, um, is the right model for these this new style of sort of media enterprise that's that's getting started. Um, because although it, on the surface it seems really appealing, right? You're like, well, mm -hmm. getting paid subscription revenue is nice. Getting paid advertising revenue is nice. Like if I just do both, I can get more money. So why wouldn't I want that? But it turns out that the kind of work that you do when you're trying to provide really deep value 
to you know a few thousand or tens of thousands of people that are going to pay you money for the thing is just fundamentally different than the kind of work you do when you're trying to get you know a million eyeballs on something so you can get a, a CPM. And so by focusing on uh, subscriptions, we think that we can make the writers much more money and much more reliable money, by the way, because you know a lot of publications have seen their advertising revenue just tank over the, the course of the crisis. But people who have, have a subscriber base, you know, it's much more, much more steady as you continue to provide value. Sure. But I guess even, you know, with those businesses, there's, there's other ways of making revenue directly from readers that, that isn't just a, a, a monthly fee. So I'm guessing, is that sure. more the route that you're going, you're thinking of going down? Like, I mean, events are a bit moot at this point, but well, access <laughs> to live events that are digital or, or, you know, e-commerce, that kind of thing. Is, is that more what you were hinting at? Yeah, I think events are really interesting. I, I, I think that for the foreseeable future, subscriptions are the right model for all that stuff. Um, it's just an incredibly powerful, simple, easy to understand, economically viable uh, way to pay for this stuff. Um, but definitely, yeah, direct direct support from the audience. Sure. Um, one thing I was really interested um, to talk to you about was your launch of Defender. So Defender is this program offering legal support to some of your newsletter writers in the US. And I know when I've spoken to journalists about potentially branching out on their own, there's usually a couple of things that, that worries them. One is that they won't have um, an editor to make their writing better or to point out mistakes. Um, but two, they can be left on their own if someone tries to sue them. Um, and I imagine there was a lot of kind of hand wringing in leading up to that decision to launch Defender, but which, which causes do you support? And does that mean you're potentially a publisher, not, not a platform? Can you, can you talk a little bit about that launch and the kind of decision-making process leading up to it? Yeah. I mean, we're definitely not a publisher. <laughs> um, we've launched the Defender program because of sort of exactly what you said. One of the things that worries people when they're starting their own media enterprise is, you know, what do I do if somebody threatens to sue me? Um, and unfortunately, because that dynamic exists, um, there are lots of people out there in the world, powerful people, it turns out, who are sometimes the subject of critical journalism, who basically try to take advantage of that fact in order to, to bully independent writers and journalists. Mm -hmm. um, so we had a couple cases where, you know, somebody on Substack was just asking us just they're sort of like out of curiosity, like, has anybody has ever has this ever happened to anybody else? And you know, what do you do? And do you know any good lawyers when somebody sent you this <laughs> asking threatening seeming letter? <laughs> well, and it's yeah, asking for a friend, but you know, it's, it's there's sort of like, you know, I wrote something that's clearly good, you know, important journalism and well within the bounds of the law, but I got this scary looking letter on sort of official looking letterhead from a lawyer saying a bunch of blustery stuff. Mm -hmm. And that exists because, because it works basically. If you if you go after someone that's, you know, writing a a, a local politics blog um, because they think it's there's an important hole in the market, um, you know, if you can just sort of scare them with legal threats, often it's easy to get them to be quiet. And the downside of that is that it it, it quells a lot of important journalism, right? Like it creates this environment where people are afraid to do independent journalism. And so we thought that by launching Defender, our biggest goal with it is A, to kind of just like 
give independent writers a place to start where they're just like, oh my God, I got this thing. What do I do? Like, how do I, where do I even start with this? Um, give them a place to start. But also if we can, through that, help fund some of the cases where the most egregious abuses are going on. So places where somebody's really just trying to shut up a journalist that with, that's completely without, you know, legally baseless, but they're just being bullies. If we can come in and vigorous, help vigorously defend those cases and make it clear that it, it's not without cost to send a threatening letter to a journalist, we can hopefully contribute to a broader climate where journalists can be more fearless. Independent journalists can be more fearless across the board, even if they're not on Substack. And if we can use our resources to do that, we just feel really good about it. And it's sort of this lovely intersection of selfishly good for the company, but also we think good for democracy. So, so how do you pick kind of which journalists to support them? Would it be a case of they would apply for help or would you, I don't know, Stubstack stumbles across the latest case of somebody being intimidated on Twitter by a big company or something and, and decides to back them there? How, how will it work? Yeah, so we, in the, in the first version of the program, we have an application process. People can apply um, and then we have sort of, a, a different set of uh, variety of amounts of help that we can offer based on the case. Um, everything from, you know, we don't think we can actually help with this to, you know, we can give you, we can fund a quick review of this to help you out all the way up to, you know, we're going to seriously back, back you with a substantial sort of legal funding. Uh, and the way that we decide to do that is basically, uh, in the way that we think is going to help promote that climate of freedom of the press. Um, so in particular, we want to help vigorously defend people who are uh, the subject of kind of particularly heinous attempts to silence important journalism. Okay, interesting. So would you have, I mean, in a hypothetical world, would you have backed the you know, Gorka in the, the Hulk Hogan case? I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with the details of that. But, but potentially, it doesn't have to just be a Substack author. It's your, this is more of a, a kind of moral um, in, integrity thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah. The, the other thing that I was interested in, um, and again, it, which to me positions you a little bit more in the kind of media owner bucket than, than simply the pipes that facilitate the content, is you're launching um, fellowship grants too. So could you talk me through those? So, so essentially there's, there's a senior fellow and they'll, they'll receive $100,000 in a grant and then um, four other fellows who will receive um, a kind of an advance as well, but this isn't, isn't quite as sizable. Um, so yeah, again, inter interested in the thinking behind that one. Yeah, so as we've been building this platform for independent writers, you know, we talk to a lot of people who are thinking about going independent, who are thinking about starting something like this. Um, a lot of people find the idea really compelling and want to do it. Um, and it's helpful to have examples of, uh, you know, people that have done it that you can kind of see. And one of the big things that we do overall at Substack is we're not just building a, a sort of a software tool that physically lets you publish stuff. I think the broader thing that we're doing is we're saying writing independently on the internet for yourself 
is a thing that you can do. That's a real thing that works, that there's a, there's a, there's a type of business that you can create that does this. And helping fund example, helping, helping give people some funding to like start one of those things, um, helps create the examples that let people understand that that exists. I see. So it's, it's, it's kind of part marketing, I, I suppose, as well. And again, so people apply for these. So how do they, how do they get judged? How does the how do the ultimate fellows get picked? Um, in this case, there was a, a panel of judges from successful. There was other successful Substack writers. Um, do you think you'd do this again? I mean, I, I appreciate that this is this is fairly new <laughs> territory for you. Yeah. But do you, do you think you might make it a regular thing? Um, I'm just thinking similarly of other tech platforms that have done similar and you know news initiatives, for example. Yeah, this is actually the second uh, the second iteration uh, that we're on now. So it's definitely something that we would like to continue if, it's, if it continues to work as well as it has been. Great. Um, and I wanted to just to kind of end a bit by by looking forward um, and by looking ahead and perhaps by zooming out. Sure. I wanted to get your, a sense of kind of what your kind of long-term view is of the journalism business. We were, we were talking earlier about the pandemic and, you know, clearly it's accelerated a lot of trends that were already happening. Advertising was already extremely turbulent. Um, I think people have begun to question some live de- events. Print was already... You know, going down the pan, subscription businesses were emerging as being kind of fairly resilient. Um, just keen to get a sense of, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing your long subscriptions, but I'm, I'm keen to know which <laughs> trends were um, that have really come to the fore during these past two months that, that you think will stick and perhaps what's what might go away, what might be be temporary and, and whether there are kind of reasons to be kind of cheerful about the, the future of media in this environment where there's, you know, thousands of people losing their, their jobs in, in, in journalism and news deserts all across the US and elsewhere in the world? Yeah. I think all those those trends that you mentioned are all real. Death of print media, you know, turbulent advertising revenue, and certainly all, all of those things are, are pre-existing trends that the pandemic has helped accelerate. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned that subscriptions were already on the rise. And I think that maybe the important question is, why are readers willing to pay for this stuff? Because that's the biggest question that we got in the early days of Substack. It's like, look, there's more great writing available for free on the internet than ever before and that any person could ever begin to touch on in in five lifetimes. So why would anybody pay for a writer that they that, that, that they care about. And, and in particular, you know, on Substack, there are people paying more for one individual newsletter than they pay for all of Netflix. Hmm. And that doesn't really make sense if you think about it just in terms of like, you know, dollars per hour of entertainment or dollars per word that I read or something like that. There has to be something else going on there. And that's the broader trend. You know, you sort of asked, you know, how did you pitch Substack? Why is it different than these other newsletter services? The broader trend that I think that we are seeing accelerate and come to the forefront right now is that people want to take back their money. Because we've seen this media landscape that's dominated by sort of what's popular on social media feeds and what's popular on social media feeds is a result of the algorithms that 
that run those feeds, which are crafted to maximize engagement, that are crafted to kind of like be maximally addicting so that you keep coming back and coming back and seeing the ads on, on their sites. Um, that has created an environment where the things that win, the things that get the most views, that get the most clicks, that get the most play, um, are not necessarily the things that you want, mm. right? When you optimize for engagement, because we're dealing with human beings here, because we're dealing with, you know, people's tenden- people's natural tendencies, and this goes back to what I was saying, you know, the rules of the game you set up in a system dictate the behavior. Um, the stuff that ends up winning is the stuff that stokes fear, that stokes outrage, that stokes division, um, that keeps you sort of maximally agitated. You know, the fact that we have a word for doom scrolling, I think, says it all. There's kind of this idea that, you know, my attention has been hijacked. I've become addicted to all these feeds that are just giving me stuff that's draining me and draining me. If that was true before coronavirus, it's even more true now. And people just want an alternative to that. People want to say, I want to take back control of, of what I'm putting into my brain. I want to decide who I'm going to trust and how I'm going to see the world. And if I have to pay 10 bucks a month to a writer that I love to do that, that is a great deal. Mm-hmm. And that's the trend that makes me feel optimistic for the future. And I know you you know, you said plenty of times during this that, you know, Substack isn't a newsletter company per se, but um, clearly one of the things that you do is allow um, writers to create newsletters and, and make money from them. And I, there was an interesting conversation on, on Twitter the other day that I'd love your, your thoughts on. So, um, Nilay Patel, who's the editor-in-chief of The Verge, tweeted, um, every time I hear about the future of journalism being individual reporters with paid newsletters, I wonder who will subsidize the reality of the big scoop. Um, they mostly involve the boring grinding on the margins, which was it was in um, response to somebody um, at The Post explaining how they got the, the story about the U.S. Postal Service, which was by you know covering some, <laughs> some very boring local board of elections um, meetings. So, yeah, just keen to get your, your thoughts on that, the, the economics of this. Um, I, I guess the point was that for every hot take on a particular piece of news, you need somebody out there doing the grunt work to have broken the news in the first place. Um, and I appreciate that Substack isn't just hot takes, but um, yeah, where, <laughs> how, how is the economics of this kind of going to balance out, do you think? I mean, we uh, ideally you just have more of everything, but that isn't the way the world is working currently. Yeah. I will say that we see there are some people on Substack who are doing, absolutely doing real reporting. Mm. And we've seen people who put in a bunch of work and get a scoop or get a story or discover a story by doing that sort of classic grunt work digging. Um, And that ends up blowing up for them and introducing a bunch of people for their work um, and paying off in subscriptions to the tunes of tens of thousands of dollars. So I don't think it's impossible for a subscription model to fund good journalism or to fund the grunt work that gets you the scoops and and gets you that stuff. Mm -hmm. That said, I don't think that it's necessarily a complete answer either. Um, You know, we're not here saying that the Substack model is, is, is perfect and is going to be able to fund every type of, of journalism that society needs. Um, we just think that it can it can help a lot on the margin. And so, what's what's next in twenty twenty for Substack? What can we look out for? It's clearly going to be a big year, sorry for media. So, what what are your kind of priorities as we 
hurtle hopefully out of this pandemic into an election and beyond? I mean, we're going to keep building uh, features that serve readers and writers, uh, that help writers uh, grow their audience, that help writers connect. Um, you know, we have a, a, a podcasting beta feature because a lot of writers want to also do a podcast. I think there are, there may be other types of media that fit that bill. And yeah, we'll keep we'll just keep building the platform. Well, best of luck. Chris, thanks ever so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Diddy Dave podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if that's your thing. We'll be back again next week with a brand new episode, this time featuring Donald Albright, producer and co-founder at podcast studio Tenderfoot TV. 